Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good, good. We got a full house here today. My wife is working from home. My children are at home. Uh, home? So just two of them, the two oh, that go okay. to school still. Yeah. Right. All three of the boys, uh, my, my sons are uh, currently looking for work because of uh, the economy right now. Like, well, oh. their, their old work was shut down. Yeah. So tough times, Bruce. Boy, are they ever, are they ever. Yeah. Tough as I can remember, David. Of course, I'm a boomer, so I haven't lived through the real tough things like the Depression or the World Wars or anything. But uh, Very few this, people alive have at this point, is the truth. This is the biggest, uh, well, we'll see. We'll see what we think about, about this a year from now, what we're all saying about a year from now. Maybe uh, I, it's still unknown how bad this is. It could be calamitous, total disaster. Or right. maybe a year from now we think, Boy, that ended fast, and uh, it was really life just went on. I'm so sure we'll find I'll out. Right on that one. Yeah, <laughs> I have my doubts. Yeah, feels like we'll a game see. changer, doesn't it? Well, we'll know more in the next little while. Yeah. We'll know more in the next little while. All right, we we are here not to mourn the loss of the old world, but to uh, <laughs> delve delve into the possibility that there will be a future for the Edmonton Oilers in this new one, and there's still the chance. There's still a chance there's going to be a playoffs. And, of course, we're doing our regular work. We're used to shutting down kind of Oilers um, talk <laughs> by this time of year, Bruce. Because, um, yeah, the season's usually over and usually the Oilers are done. What is it, 12 of the last 13 years? Is that yeah. it? They've been done? So this yep. is this is just business as usual. It's just a little bit more <laughs> uh, despairing in the real world than it. Usually it's just despairing in oil country. Now it's everywhere. Um, so, Bruce, we're going to talk today about um, Yamamoto, Ken Holland, his ability to procure wingers, and the Oilers' power play, because you're working on um, a series, season-ending series on um, the Oilers' season. All right, so let's start off with let's start off with one thing though that, that kind of a loose end from the last podcast sure at that time we had there was an indication that philip berglund well he has signed a two-year contract with the new swedish team um but there's an indication now bob stoffer was talking to scott hausen he used to be with the oilers and uh, until oh. recently and scott hausen was saying that actually the Oilers, in, in terms of what he knows the Oilers are in negotiations with both berglund and marcus niemelein and um kind of a huge rangy low scoring Right shot, D-man. He's, he he's a lefty. He's a lefty. Lefty and Berglund's right. So, so when we were talking about it, we were looking at it, and it didn't make sense to either of us that the Oilers wouldn't try to get this player because mm-hmm. he's a right shot. The Oilers are are a little low on right shot D-man, um, certainly in the AHL for next year, and who knows, maybe going forward because there's the this expansion draft. So the Oilers are, might have a chance of getting this player, which is good news, correct? Oh, I'll say it's good news. I mean, he's been on uh, Shaleftia since he was 14. He came up through the system. They have a club feeder system over there like they do in the in the football clubs and so on. And he was in that team the whole time. And uh, he just did some kind of a Texas two-step where 
he, not only did he sign a contract for, you know, they always have to sign him by June 1st of this year. Not only did he sign a contract for next uh, season and the season following, he did it with a different club. So it looked like he just decided on a new course that his career was going. And uh, yet the point was made by a uh, uh, friend of the blog, Original Pozar, uh, to us that uh, just because a guy signs in Sweden doesn't mean he's ineligible to come over here. It just uh, He just sucked me in just because of the nature of the move. It seemed like a, a full-out move and a career decision by him. But uh, Joachim Nygaard, he actually signed a three-year contract in Sweden last summer before he signed with the Oilers, and he bailed on that. I think what it means is that uh, the team that signed him, Lynn Shoping, is probably entitled to some kind of a transfer fee, uh, but that's relatively small potatoes. Uh, and uh, uh, if the Oilers can 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 uh, convince this guy to sign, and, and uh, Scott House not only said they were talking to him, he said he thinks they were going to sign him. It sounded like he was quite confident. Uh, so he's a 22-year-old right shot. Swedish defenseman. Now, not tell me what's not to like about any of those words I just strung, to, strung together. <laughs> Six three two oh nine, uh, all-purpose defenseman who's just coming off career highs with five goals, fifteen assists, and twenty points to finish in the top twenty among Swedish league uh, defensemen for scoring. And I mean, scoring is not his primary. It's not like he's a he's not uh, uh, Joel Pearson, right? He's a way more yeah. complete player than that. And more to it, he played much of the season partnered with Philip Broberg, Oilers' first-round draft pick from 2019. Now, Broberg has already signed with the Oilers and was loaned back to the Swedish League. Uh, he has one more sort of junior age season to go, which he could again be loaned back to the Swedish League. But if the Oilers can ink um, uh, Philip Berglund and Philip Broberg. I, I, I get these guys mixed up because only one syllable is different <laughs> between <laughs> between their names. Philip and Philip and Berglund and Broberg. Anyway, uh, there's, a, there's a non-zero chance. To me, this is sort of the ideal solution. They could bring the two of them over, airlift them in together into Bakersfield next year, get them going on the North American game, playing together at least part of the time, so that there's some familiarity, you know, there's a little bit of a soft landing for each guy playing with the guy they're familiar with who speaks their own language and so on. And uh, uh, it would be, uh, you know, it would be a nice boost for Bakersfield, who lost uh, two, two and a half of their of their top young defensemen this year when all of Ethan Bear, Caleb Jones, and at least in part, William Laguson all got promoted to the NHL. That you know they were down a couple of courts on the on the blue line down there in Bakersfield and and it showed. So all that uh, there there's way more room for hope there than it seemed like on Monday and and uh, uh, I guess you know we're not privy to some of the nuts and bolts of how they negotiate and how Swedes negotiate in the Swedish league, <laughs> but it sounds like uh, Bergland is still very much in play and and if he is. Uh, uh, Great. He's, uh, he's got 200 games in the Swedish league. So, I mean, one option is they could sign him and loan him back to Linköping for at least one of those two years. But I don't see why they need to. Like 200 games over there, zero games over here. He needs to get going in the North American rinks if indeed he has designs on an NHL future. 
there could be some major turnover in Bakersfield next year. Um, if Logason makes the NHL, for instance, as a seventh mm-hmm. D man. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so let's just look at their D quickly run down the decor there. Cause that would mm-hmm. be bringing in two players. I don't think they're going to bring right. anyone else, but, um, I don't know if they got both those guys. So Evan Bouchard could um, depends what happens with with uh, Benning, I guess, this summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you know, you'd think they're going to keep around Larson at this point, the way he played Bruce at the end of the year, man. Like, I I would expect that. You never know. But uh, so Bouchard could make the Oilers. Uh, you know, taking Benning's Pretty job essentially. Logason mm-hmm. uh, is the seventh. Well, the. If if they move out Russell and Benning, that then Bouchard is a favorite to make the orders. And Bouchard, uh, thirty six points in fifty four games, and by the end he was a bu- kind of a point per game guy for the last twenty games or so. I understand. Um, there's Logan Day, who's twenty four. I think he was on a one year ELC this year. I don't actually. I'm not a huge fan of of his game. He's he. I don't see him as a as as a NHL prospect. So maybe he'll come back. Um, there's um, Jake Kulovich, who's 26 this year. He's kind of a AHL third pairing kind of guy. Um, minor maybe league he comes contract. back. Yeah, minor league contract. Maybe he comes back. That's a possibility because he played okay in Bakersfield this year when I saw him. There's Dmitry Samarukov, who is yes. 20 this year, needs to play more 100%. and will get be will be getting more playing time. He played uh, 47 games Bakersfield this year. 10 points, minus 5, uh, goals plus minus. He's a he's a very uh, promising player, needs to play more. Matt, Brandon Manning won't be back. I, I I wonder if Keegan Lowe will be back. I I, I, nope. I doubt it, Bruce. Nope. So if they if they bring they've, – they've got some holes there, obviously. Yeah, That's a lot sure of players. Do. That's a lot of players leaving town. So mm-hmm. they're going to have to um, – I could see them having – bringing over Broberg and Berglund, and I could yeah. see that – Boy, that that sounded when you mentioned that it sounded like a kind of a genius move that, that someone's That's, been thinking there. That sounds like a very good move in terms of introducing both of those players to 100%. North American hockey. I don't see any. Is there any other Swedes on the team this year? I don't believe so. Logason. No, they had they had Joel Pearson there for a while, and of course they moved him along at the trade deadline. So uh, he's out of the picture entirely now. And so, you know, they're down, you know, they need another right shot somewhere in the system, almost regardless of what happens with, the, you know, at the 6-7 level at the NHL. They're going to want to bring in somebody. And uh, a Bergman, you know, I mean, four years out from his draft year, 22 years old, like, say, 200 games in the Swedish League and another 30 in the playoffs, like, that's a prime candidate to me. I'd love to see that happen. And, uh, and if they could convince them to come together... So much the better. I mean, Broberg got his one good year against men in the Swedish League. Well, another year against men in the AHL, his contract could still slide. And then by 2021, maybe he's ready to go. Maybe they're both ready to go. I mean, who knows, right? But uh, they got uh, uh, they got room. All the guys you listed, only Samarkov, to me, is a slam dunk, dunk lead pipe cinch to be on Bakersfield Condors in 2020. This, this I could fall. see it. I could see Day and Kulovich getting AHL contracts. Maybe Day. Every time uh, I watch Bakersfield, Day's playing right wing. You know, I mean, he's not a he's not a real defense prospect. He's kind of an offensive rover type. Yeah, so maybe. But they 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 like his talent, but I would be shocked to see him have an NHL career. I got to. It say. looks to me like they're going to be bringing in, excuse me, a, a real veteran player too, Bruce. They, they're going to need someone, at least yep. one, 
Hope maybe Ryan Stanton's free this this summer. Bring him back, man. He's a good That's hockey player. Iowa player. Yeah, yeah, I really like him and uh, someone like that or Brandon Davidson. Um, he's pr- he'll probably be free again. Bring him back as your veteran uh, D man. Okay, um, Bruce, let's talk about something that we've I've tracked for a long time, and this is um, something called we that I've always called hard plays at the net. And initially, mm. it was just on goals that we tracked this. And right. what it is, it's 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 essentially it's a it's when a player, um, you know, and it was initially just screening the goalie. Um, but we, in terms of hard plays, now we we count them all for all grade A chances for. It's goalie screens when you tip the puck on net, when you jam the puck in the crease. So that's you're in tight. There's a battle for the puck in the crease, and you get a jam shot. What we call a jam shot. Um, or a hard charge. And that's where, um, let's say there's two players rushing on two players. And, and like, let's say it's Cassian McDavid, McDavid has the puck. Cassian charges hard of the net, thus opening up a lane for McDavid to fall right. in behind and get a shot. So that's, right. the, that's another category. So those four categories. And so we tracked that this year. I usually did the first tracking of it and then you would go over my assignments. And if I made yep. any mistakes or you had a major disagreement and thought I was wrong, you, you had the veto power, the power of veto. Um, and, uh, so that's how we, that was our system for trying to come up with a less like just not subjective, not just one person's opinion on, right. on whether it was right or not, but to, to have that kind of, uh, uh, uh guidance or, um, uh, not surveillance. I'm trying. I can't think of the word, but uh, right. Anyway, often we would discuss it if there was a, a you know yes. a, a mild difference of opinion. But uh, <clears throat> uh, I've always kind of liked those categories of the hard plays at net, and especially the you know the goalie screen and the hard charge, where the guy never touches the puck typically, never gets any points out of it, and yet is instrumental to the goal being scored. And the jam play, where he's actually the guy trying to stuff the puck in, basically from inside the blue paint, is typically what a jam shot comes from. Yeah. Or deflection. Well, I mean, if those go in, obviously the guy gets credit gets for a goal. goal. But it's, it's usually sort of a garbage goal as opposed to anything pretty. And it's just, you know, what the what the commentators call going to the dirty areas. And uh, uh, the Oilers have long had, to me, an absence on the team of forwards that are really willing to do that, or at least very successfully do that. And so uh, it's, a, it's a category I would, for years I would have loved to have seen a similar sort of parallel project that somebody else did using the same categories on other teams that we could really compare, because of course we've always only ever done this on the Oilers, so there's a little bit of self-referential bias to it. But um, I've always thought, you know, just by observation that you know, the other team's got more goals doing these kind of things than the Oilers seem to. And uh, this year, uh, well, the stuff you tracked, there was some pretty positive stuff that I'll let you. Yeah, and this is the first year we've tracked it, I think, in this amount of depth where we have the coding down and everything down. So we're, we're, we're you know, it's taken us, I've been at this for a long time now, this kind of video tracking, more than 10 years. But it's taken this long for us to work out a system, which I'm actually really happy with at this point. I think we're getting some really solid and interesting uh, information about Oilers players. So this year, Bruce, the smallest player on the Edmonton Oilers, perhaps the smallest player of, in, in the, the NHL. League? Well, there's Nathan Gerb. Is that his name, Gerb? Gerby. Uh, who's sh- Gerby, who's shorter. I don't know if he's smaller, though. So this the smallest player on the Oilers, perhaps in the entire NHL, and I think he is the smallest player in the NHL, Kyler Yamamoto, 
made more hard, gritty plays on net, on Grady scoring chances and goals, than any other Edmonton Oiler. Now, usually when I think of these guys, you know, it's, you know, these net front guys, it's, you know, it runs the gamut from, you know, Dan Maloney, uh, Gary Dornhofer, <laughs> Craig Simpson in the old days, um, to Milan Lucic and Thomas Holmstrom um, mm-hmm. in more recent times. And and on the Oilers, there's Chase on Cassian and James Neal. They're all big, tough guys who go to the front of the net. Yamamoto on a per game basis, per you know, per minute basis, had more hard plays at the net than any of those other guys on the orders than any of those big rough net front guys. He had 0.7 uh, per 15 minutes of ice time. Chase on was at 0.6 per 15. Cassian uh, 0.57 and Neil 0.42. It's interesting, Tyler Benson was also at 0.42. And I was thinking if Tyler Benson's going to make the Oilers and make it as an NHLer, this is an area he must succeed at. This is an area where he, he's got to amp up his game considerably. But um, Yamamoto is a true wonder, Bruce. He mm-hmm. is a true wonder at this. And we've talked before about how you know his wrestling career, he's talked huh. about his wrestling career, yes. has enabled him to get kind of position on people, know how to compete. And does he ever do it? What an amazing uh, hockey player. What a unique hockey player Kyler Yamamoto is. Mm-hmm. Well, he is, uh, according to NHL.com, uh, there's four players in the NHL who are <laughs> shorter than his listed five foot eight, um, including Nathan Gerby, five foot four, Rocco Grimaldi, Blake Lazat, and Alex Debrinkat. But there is not a single player in the league that is lighter than uh, Yamamoto's listed 153 pounds. He is the lightest player, skater at least. Who's the next uh, lightest? Does it? Do you have that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I sure do. Uh, Brent Sini of New Jersey Devils, who played two games, as 156. Paul Byron of Montreal is 158. Well, and that's, Tyler, an player, eh? Tyler Ennis at 161 is next, and so. You know, Yamamoto, Byron, Ennis. I mean, these are small guys that just are uh, all of them. You know, got a little bit of uh, a little bit of grit to their game and and go where angels fear, fear to tre- tread. If you'll uh, don't mind the old uh, cliche, um, but uh, Yamamoto held his own in that respect and then some. I mean, he didn't play the whole season, but in t- terms of as a rate, uh, by your numbers, he was tops the top of the pop, say for the Oilers. So Paul Byron is a he he is a tough player, isn't he? He's another mm-hmm. guy who's a pretty. I mean, just, I just one fifty eight. My concern about this kind of player mm-hmm. um, is always their durability. And Yamamoto's mm-hmm. been injured for parts of the last three seasons. Mm-hmm. And I look when I'm looking at Byron here, man, he missed most of the year. I don't know what his injury was this year. Yeah, and he missed a lot of last year too. He, you know, he had two years where he played almost every game before that. So, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a very difficult thing, I think, for a player this size to remain healthy over the long term. So, I, but like, as I said in my post on this, it's a worry for another day. We should just, like, it's thrilling to watch Yamamoto. He was a, he was a, it was, it was a game-changing moment for the Edmonton Oilers when he arrived in the team after Christmas. Yeah. That, that line was fantastic. It was the best line you know, since I guess what Horkoff, Hemsky, and Ryan Smith on the Oilers. 
True. Well, you could say I make the Hall, case Eberle for, and, Hall or Eberle and R and H, but that wasn't McDa- a great. McDavid, Drysaddle, Maroon. Fair enough. You know, yeah. Well, I, I think this really line was stacked. I, I would say this line was better than any of those lines. Wow. Yeah. Well, for the time, you know, 30 games that they were together, they were dominant. I guess we can look into that. Um, mm. Except we except that a natural statric doesn't go back to Horkoff, Hemsky, and Smith. It goes back to the, just the year after that. I think. I think the first year that natural statric allows us to do that line comparison is 2007 and eight. And Smith. We could get Horpensky. That'd be pretty good. Yeah, that was a good line too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah very it good. <clears throat> um, so, uh, yeah, I don't have much so, more to say about that. Any so, other thoughts well, on that? Well, you were just the numbers. You're on a like I think maybe Chase on and a couple of the other guys had more raw uh, numbers for making Total, those yeah. kind of plays. But in terms of per sixty or per fifteen, I guess is how you do it. Yamamoto's number one. Yeah, I do it per fifteen because that's kind of the equivalent of a game of ice right. time. I like to like per game, just makes sense for me to do it. Like per sixty, that's four games for most players. So I've always liked the per fifteen, which Eric, I think it was not Eric Desjardins, but Gabriel Desjardins behind right. the net. I think he did per fifteen back in the day, uh, the early stats days, and I always preferred that to per sixty. So right. um, that's that's why I use per fifteen. And on the power play, when I do the stats, I use per two. For two minutes mm-hmm. because uh, I think that's the appropriate now, um, length of time. Remind me, this these stats that you published today, this is all situations? This is all situations, so it includes right. shorthanded time. Yeah. So like and a player like Shane or Archibald, you're not going to get many hard plays of the net on the shorthanded. So, so, but the top four guys, Yamamoto, Chase on Cassian and Neil, none of them played a significant amount of time on the penalty kill. I mean, I, what you, what I might do next time is just put time on ice, even strength, and um, uh, power play combined. Um, I mean, you could break out every game situation in the numbers, but then it's I. I it You'll find chase chase on's uh, contributions by far are tilted towards the power play. Not well. And, he had a lot and, of even strength. And Cassian's at even strength because Cassian doesn't play much power play. He had ten goalie screens and. Chase on to, to my non-surprise led the team with uh, with twelve. They both had fifteen jams, so there was some similarity there. But uh, Chase on's a lion's share. His would have been on the power play, and Cassian, almost all of it would be at even strength because he just really didn't play much power play at yeah. all. Yeah, you know what this indicated to me, Bruce, that Zach Cassian might be a really good power play guy. Like, in, like look at what he did just playing even strength. Mm-hmm. Um, if he was given that job in front of the net, like let's say. Neil, for whatever reason, Neil isn't back uh, right. next year. And Chason is, you know, if they're looking for another guy, don't look further than Zach Cassian. He signed up to a long-term deal. He, I think he could do that job. I'll say don't look further than Kyler Yamamoto. <laughs> That'd be a different yeah. power play. All. Well, isn't that the truth, Bruce? Like, he yeah, I mean, be- looking at these stats, I mean, <laughs> one of these things is not like the other. You have these three yeah. huge men, right? Uh, Chase on Cassian, Neil, all older veterans, big, heavy, you know, full-grown, hairy-ass men, as they say. And then you got this kid who's like the smallest, lightest player in the league. And at least on, on a rate basis, he's outperforming even in these 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 strong, heavy, uh, uh, dirty area types. It's, it's really quite astonishing. 
And yeah, I've, I mean, you know, and to me, it's not like, like the numbers confirm what we saw with our eyes. I don't think we were giving him any benefit of the doubt here. I think he was going hard into those places and making stuff happen and good things happened. Bet you if you did the same thing, but only counted the ones that led to goals, he'd be on top of that list too. Yeah, in terms of goalie screens and considering he didn't play the power play, his rate is almost about the same as, well, it's a little below chase-ons. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, like it's it's funny. I just completely overlooked him, which has probably ha- happened to Kyler Yamamoto all his life. But he would be fantastic <laughs> on the power play. Like if you could get him, you know, because he, he's, got, he's, got, he's got something that these other guys don't have. He's got elite skill in terms of passing the puck mm-hmm. and, and his ability to win pucks yeah. Is second to none, I think, on the Oilers right now. Maybe McDavid, uh, but in terms of like Maybe going in the corners, stripping pucks off other people, Drysaddle, McDavid, and, and him are the best. So, what what better thing? Yeah, there's a real argument there for playing Yamamoto on the on the power play. So good catch there, Bruce. I give you credit on that. <laughs> Start making that argument on a regular basis. Um, ready to move on to the next topic. Our next topic. Uh, yeah, I think so. I was just looking up one little thing here. This is just the the takeaway stat. I like saying uh, our next topic because we have now the Doug Doug and Bob monument here in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And they remember they would always talk about their mm-hmm. what's our topic. All right, yeah, Yamamoto, nineteen takeaways, but uh, per sixty. If you look at takeaways per sixty, like he's he, he's um, he's way behind uh, McDavid. Drysaddle 60, Nuge 54, McDavid 53, uh, but per 60, uh, he's actually ahead of those guys. So yeah, you know, on takeaway, so it steals so the puck. So I yeah, mean, he's right a- in. The, he's right. I mean, they're they're. You could throw a blanket over all these guys around 2.4 per 60, but he's right in there with them. So I wonder if we should start tracking takeaways. It's something that we don't track, and I don't trust the NHL's numbers. I don't know if we do a better job, but. I certainly I don't, don't trust the NHL. I only trust. I trust them this this far. I trust them as far as all these guys are getting watched by the same scores throughout the game. I don't trust uh, takeaways of any Oiler against any Flame, for example, because it's two different scores. But within a given team, they're getting you know getting judged by the same <clears> scores. <throat> so it, it does give you kind of an idea of who's better at this or that between that. You know, sure. the takeaways, the block yeah. shots, the hits, those those kind of miscellaneous stats, as NHL calls them. So I put a little bit of stock in them, but my degree of confidence in them is not high because I miss a lot. Yeah, that is a very good point that you made. Like, inter-team, um, they have some meaning, but not comparative team to team. Yeah. All right, uh, Ken Holland, Bruce. I did a post mm. earlier this week where I was um, praising Ken Holland for bringing in a lot of decent wingers. I mean, essentially, the Oilers... When we entered this season and last season, probably the season before, we were wondering who's going to play with McDavid and Drysaddle. Like, are there enough good wingers? Mm-hmm. And it was a real question mark. Like entering the yep. season, we thought, well, Drysaddle's probably going to play a lot with McDavid, and Nugent Hopkins is going to figure in there somewhere. He's going to be on one of their lines probably. But uh, other than that, there was there was no sure things. But out of you know, by the end of the year, there was I think a there's at least four guys. Uh, there's a, well, there's James Neal, Zach mm-hmm. Cassian, mm-hmm. Kyler Yamamoto. There's five, Andreas Athanasiu and Tyler Ennis. So, so we went from zero to about five guys who aren't bad uh, options to play. Well, Ka- Cassian was already there because he was, you well, know, he was up there the second half of 
There was a huge debate, Bruce. There was lots of people. The whole on-ice analytics crowd completely doubted Zach Cassian heading into the year is the truth. Is that not true? But yeah, but Holland didn't get him. And he didn't yeah. really promote him. He, like Yamamoto, he promoted, even though he sort of inherited him. The he other three guys well. he mentioned, he went out and got, right? He That's traded right. for James Neal. He traded for uh, Tyler Ennis and, and Andreas Athanasiu. I'm going to get it eventually. You got it. You nailed it. So, Bruce, when I looked into this, I found something. So I was thinking... I kind of knew because we've talked about this before. How they, and I've written about this in recent years. How every year it seems to be the Oilers give away their top winger in the summer, or in the season at some point. So I, yeah. I was thinking about this because you know we we all know the recent history of this. But then I thought this actually goes back a little further than the Shirelli era. And I did a little list. So the list <clears throat> here's I'll just give you the list. And these are usually players that went on to have some success in other NHL cities um, okay. after they left Edmonton. Almost without exception. <clears throat> so in 2005-06, they traded. They had traded for Sergei Samsonov for the playoff run, but they didn't keep him after that. 2006-07, they lose Ryan Smith in a contract dispute in the season, and Joffrey Lupul after the season because he's worn out his welcome here. But he goes on in Toronto to play really strong hockey. 2007 and eight. This is, and this is one of the killers, Curtis Glencross. Oh, I still hate this. I, I think that they totally <laughs> dropped the ball. They were so focused on Marion. Uh, Hosa, Hosa bringing in Hosa, they're chasing them, and by the time they were done, their Hosa escapade, they're they're uh, they're tilting at that tilting at that windmill. They had lost Curtis Glencross to the Flames. Two thousand and eight oh nine, they lose mm-hmm. Eric Cole in a trade for Patrick O'Sullivan. Patrick O'Sullivan. Okay, and then in two thousand and ten eleven, they trade Dustin Penner. This is one where it worked out because they got a first pick. Um, for Penner, and they drafted Oscar Kluckbaum. 2011-12, this is another one that hurts. Andrew Cogliano is discarded. Now, there's some talk. I was talking to Bob Stoffer on his show about this, and he was saying, well, Cogliano had it in mind at Edmonton that he was a top-line guy. When he went to Anaheim, they said they read him the riot act and said, no, you're a third-line checker. It's a shame, though, that they couldn't... Winger. Have... Yeah, third-line winger. It's a shame, though, that they couldn't have done that with Cogliano. And you know what? He was... He was a strong player in Edmonton. That was that was nuts. I always thought. Well, he he. I mean, from what Stoffer says, he was one of those guys who needed what Craig McTavish always called a second opinion. He needed a second team to tell him the same thing the first team had already been trying to tell him before it sank in. But they got nothing for the guy. Like he was a first round pick in the you know twenty fifth overall after the lockout when the Oilers drew a crappy bingo ball in the lottery, but they they cashed it and they got a good player. Uh, he came in at age 20, and he never missed a game. He played 328 games for the Oilers over four years, and they traded him for a second-round pick. Bye-bye. And for what? I mean, this is like a proven young NHL player with warts, but, you know, speed and, and grit. I mean, that, that was obvious apparent, and he went on to become a pretty good player for Anaheim for a few years. Not a great player, but a useful player, and the Oilers were always pissing away good players, uh, you know, role players that they developed within. It was like they just didn't want a guy on their team after age 24 unless he was a first-liner. It's like, you know, like, tell me the last time the Oilers had a team that was built of, you know, depth players that they developed themselves. I mean, I think you have to go back to 06. Yeah, I, I didn't. I thought Cogliano was really developing well in Edmonton. 
he didn't need a second opinion. He just needed to keep playing here and he was going to be fine here. So, and then in consecutive years from 2014, 15 on, they lose David Perron, Taylor Hall, Jordan Eberle, Patrick Maroon, and Ryan Strom. <laughs> Yeehaw. Ryan Strom. I mean, there's a guy. I mean, he was a center by the time they got rid of him. The fact is they brought him in. He was a winger center. They could have tried him at wing. They tried him at wing for about five minutes. They moved him to center. He wasn't bad at center. And they thought, well, we need scoring on the wing. Let's trade him for a scoring winger without ever looking at him on the wing again. Like, he never got a chance on the wing. And they traded him for Ryan Spooner. And, of course, they put him on the wing. And he was useless. Man, I still hate that trade, too. At least, and that's only two years old. So that memory stings even more than Curtis Glencross. But, I mean, some of these moves were just downright dumb. There's no other way to describe them. Yeah, they had signed Lucic, of course, so that meant Maroon had no obvious home here in Edmonton. Or home. Um, you know, Eberle, I think I think he the coach had lost uh faith in Eberly at that point and he and mm. and the a lot of fans that it was pretty toxic here. I think he had to go. Well, let's not talk about the Taylor Hall trade. Um Yessi Pulley <laughs> Yessi Pulley uh could also be on the list. Now that's in Holland's time, but it's still undetermined mm. what's gonna happen there. And I think I think that was a move also that had to happen. I think this was the best thing for Pugliarvi. I think it was great for him to go back to Finland for a year. And it, and it was for the Oilers, it was a great thing because they couldn't send him to the AHL anymore. They would have had to move him out or, you know, or go through another kind of wandering year in Edmonton. So that was actually the best thing that could have happened for the Oilers and probably for Pugliarvi. And we'll see what happens there, Bruce. I haven't given up. So, and I mean, this is still an incomplete list. I see there's no sign of Linus Olmark on this list, David, and, and also uh, Magnus PRV. You remember the Hope from when Hope came in? All Olmark, PRV, well, Everly, all, all his rookies, all wingers at the same time? They had that to do well in another, they had to do well in another NHL city, so I didn't include yeah, those guys. No, I know. PRV, PRV had his moments, but no, you can't really say he excelled when he moved along. <clears throat> Well, it's too early to tell with him is what I would say. We don't know. That's indeterminate. Bruce, um, the power play. So you're you're starting in the shorthanded system. You're starting to look, do your year-in-review series. Mm. So what you're going to do in the next month is start with the team, <coughs> excuse me, and then do every player kind of give a season-ending look at their season. This is something that we do every year. We've done every year for, for years and uh, for a decade. And um, so you're going to be starting in on that. You're starting in with the Oilers as a team, and you're looking at special teams to start. What what have you found? Well, special teams being the difference, because at even strength this year, I mean, the team has moved up to uh, ninth in the league in points, 12th in points percentage. After a couple of years, ranking, you know, in 23rd, 25th overall the previous two years. But you know what? A five-on-five, they haven't actually improved all that much. They were... were, 21st in the, in the league in goals four percentage uh, two years ago, 29th last year, 25th this year. Like, you know, that's not very good. And yet they're uh, um, uh, in the top half of the league in both goals for and goals against. And the main reason for that is the huge improvement in their penalty kill, which, of course, has been talked about all year. But just to, to, to quantify some of these numbers at... Um, uh, the Oilers have, you know, they're first in the league in power play percentage by a mile, 29.5%. Boston second at 25.2. That's a huge gap. They're second overall in penalty kill percentage. 
84.4%. Wow. So overall, their their special teams percentage, just to add the two together, and an average team would be around 100%. Oilers 113.9, and Boston second at 109.4, just a giant gap between uh, uh, first and second. And there's only three teams above 105, and then every, many of them, of course, cluster between 95 and 105, sort of in the middle of the pack. But the Oilers are not just above that, they're way above that. And if you look at it as straight at goal differential, uh, and you leave out shorties and just look at power play goals for, power play goals against, Edmonton plus 28, Boston plus 23, Vancouver plus 17, no other team in the NHL were in double digits. So that huge goal differential on the special teams more than made up the minus 18, I think it was. The Oilers were at 5v5 this year and made them an outscoring team. And as we've studied before, I mean, there's been many games this year where the, the power play and special teams flat out won the game. You know, the Oilers win 3-2 to two and they get two power play goals and give up zero, you know. And they turn, you know, what was a loss at 5v5 into, a, out, into an outright win. That happens several times. And the power, just the improvement in the power play, and less um, uh, trumpeted, but almost equally important, was the huge, huge improvement in the penalty kill. And you know that some of it's on management bringing in the right players, some of it's on coaching, teaching the right system, some of it's on the players. But you put it all together, and it was that mammoth improvement on special teams that turned the Oilers from an also ran into a fairly credible contender. Yeah, I haven't studied uh, the penalty kill yet. That's kind of next, uh, one of the things that's mm-hmm. next on my list, exactly what went right there. But I did, a like, I think a four or five-part series on the power play. Yeah. And in the end, I think I'm left with, like, why the power play suddenly became so good. Um, well, I think a huge part of it was just familiarity with those players. They've played together. They've played together quite a bit now. Two mm-hmm. years, pretty much the same unit uh, mm-hmm. since Chase on move there. So um, and in the same spots and they, you know, they, they, of course, unleashed McDavid. They, they instead of mm-hmm. anchoring him on the right half wall, they've let him move about freely. Dry saddles more often there in that shooting position. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other big the other key takeaway is cleft uh, uh, bomb uh, shooting a lot less. The order settling for uh, point shots a lot less and him just really working the puck either to Nugent Hopkins on one side or Dreisaitl on the other or McDavid on the other, um, him becoming a, a, a passer and not a shooter. And I the third that, thing... That post to yours, sorry, was was the one that really was an eye-opener in terms of it's not just about shot volume and funneling pucks to the net. Like when you were showing, you know, Sekera and Klepbaum getting the most shots in the power play, never scoring, and... Then when they started more, you know, Clefbaum feeding the puck and the big guys getting a higher share of the shots and the goals for rocketed up. And I'm not sure the total shots, you know, matters a hill of beans. It's who's taking the shots. Yeah. And, and that, that was a very convincing uh, uh, bit of work that you did there, David, uh, on that, uh, on that uh, you know, shots taken per, uh, was it per 60 anyway, on the power yeah. play. And it, and it just it went from, you know, the shin pad assassin to, you know, Leon Dreisaitl one-timers. Well, I know I'd rather have <laughs> I'd rather have one of the latter than five of the former, you know. <laughs> yeah. And it was like I didn't know that going into that series. It was interesting no. to do that research. And it, it was, I was kind of halfway through the series when I started to look at that. And I thought, holy, holy moly, God. this is fascinating. <laughs> He's taken, you know, the cleft bomb. We're getting about half the number of point shots, but the power play has gone from being – 
terrible or mediocre to being fantastic. And, and the third thing, um, this year especially, what clicked in, there was a big difference. It was interesting because Neil was very effective. I think he was one of the, you know, in the top 30 in terms of term James Neal in terms of power play point production. But the Oilers' power play was a lot more deadly when Chason was on the ice. And um, my theory is it, it was, again, about this, this is just like cleft bomb. When you have, you don't need everybody to be a superstar on the power play. Some guys have just got to do a role. And I think Chase on is a ma- he mastered this year that role of just really being around the goalie. Because when he's down there low around the goalie, you can't ignore him because those guys will put the puck into him and he'll deflect it into the net or jam it into the net. So, so, yeah. So when he was down there, the defense had to respect him and cover him. And that opened up passing lanes more for the other guys. So I think he was slightly better than that at Neil. And I think that was seen in the Oilers um, significantly better goal production when he was on the ice per minute compared to Neil, even though Neil is a, obviously he was really strong at the power play as well at his particular skill, which is deflecting pucks and, and shooting in pucks from the crease. Yeah. Well, one thing that they, they did that I thought was a nice wrinkle was they, when they decided, well, the second power play unit's never going to score anyway, so let's go with the first unit for a minute and 50. But what they did was they would alternate out Neil for chase on halfway yeah. through the power play. And it, it wouldn't always be the same guy starting. Like, they were kind of given equal role when both were available, when Neil wasn't hurt, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, chase on kind of worked out at the beginning of the season, it was all Neil. And Chason just kind of started getting more and more chances there. And he made the most of those chances. So I started giving him pretty much equal time. And uh, so you had, you know, the guy in the grinding position, you know, there's no reason to expect all five guys to play him in 50 seconds. So they did make that wrinkle where they left most of the power play out, but they changed out that that one guy, typically, you know, a minute or so into uh, the power play. The other, the other thing you talked about, the two-year thing, and, of course, the Oilers had three coaches in those two years, but they've had one coach coaching the power play, and that's Glenn Gulitson, and he deserves some credit for this as well. Yeah, well, I think that's when the, the philosophy change occurred from uh, shooting from the outside, shoot, 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 all the time from the yeah. outside to uh, work the puck around a little bit more and try to set up the top shooters in their best spots and also freeing up McDavid to roam. So, yeah, he, he, you know, and I was looking at his record in other cities because I was thinking, has he, has he always been like a power play, you know, the, you know, the power play Yoda? But he hasn't. The, the power plays in Calgary, I think, were not that great. And I just took a quick look, so I can't say this with certainty, but it, I, I wasn't, the initial check that I made was, no, he hadn't had this kind of outstanding success in other cities on the power but play. But in Calgary, he, you know, as a head coach, he would not necessarily have been the man focusing on the power play, whereas in Edmonton, that's been a big part of his duties. And he's uh, getting the job done. He is. Well, Bruce, I know that you are looking forward to getting out on a walk, uh, mm-hmm. to walk the dog every day. Every day. Oh, no. and that's a good thing oh, to the do. Dog, the dog can't keep up with me, David. The dog's 17, almost 18 Oh, years. you just go out on your own. I just go out on my own, stroll the, the paths of uh, the River Valley of St. Albert. Beautiful, beautiful city it is out here. And I've uh, been getting out every day, even before the COVID. Nowadays, it's, it's my connection to the world anymore. Because, of course, we're not gathering and we're, you know, we're not doing all the things we used to do. But going out and walking by myself is uh, socially distant as I can get. So, well, that's a nice thing to do. Yeah. 
Maybe yeah, I'll go do the same. I, I'm near the experimental farm at the U of A. Yeah, that's a, that's a really and that is an extremely empty and peaceful wow. and a kind of beautiful place to go for a walk. So um, wide open in the middle of the city. So I, I might head out there. All right, Bruce. Thanks All for right. talking today. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks for the people that have given us the feedback on the podcast and encouraging us to keep it coming. That it's a nice change of pace and. I don't think any of us needs to live COVID-19 24-7. You know, I mean, it's obviously it's dominating our lives, but it doesn't have to be every single second of every single day. I don't know that I can handle it, and I don't know many people who could, to be frank. I mean, it's uh, it's nice to, you know, it, obviously it's, it's number one on the list of things we think about, but it can't be one and only. So it's, it's nice to get feedback from others that you're enjoying our, our little uh, fantasy um, pursuits of where the Oilers were and where they might be going and uh, we'll keep doing it as long as uh, as uh, we're in demand so thanks for especially thanks for listening folks and I would also right now recommend two movies like I, the other thing I do I'm, I'm, aside from writing about the Oilers now and then because I, I mean I am I have been researching COVID stuff non-stop for my real uh, job oh, yeah. like just oh, yeah. non-stop and uh there's so much to learn. Uh, but I I watched, we watched two movies this week by the same director. I can't recall his name, but one of them was called Midsummer, and the other one's Hereditary. And they're both kind of modern horror movies. And they were both absolutely outstanding. Just oh. uh, very, very weird, interesting, uh, tense, frightening movies. But not, like, not these, like... You know, not the gore movies, like, right. you know, like that that genre. These are more like, I guess, Stephen King. But I would say a cut above any anything from Stephen King, if I'm completely honest, other than maybe The Shining. Just fantastic movies. So if you like that kind of that kind of moving, like it, I would compare it to the the same sense you get from The Shining or from a long time ago. Remember Wicker Man? Did you ever see that with Edward? I did not. Edward? I did not. <laughs> That's that. <Edward>. <clears throat> That was a that was a weird one from the '70s. So uh, those two movies are worth watching. One of them, Midsummer, is on Amazon Prime, and then uh, Hereditary is on Netflix. All right. Oh, okay. I, I went back and I I think I might have talked about Twelve Monkeys, so I won't dwell on it. But I had to watch it. It was so bugging me and kind of reminding me of the day because there's a there's a virus unleashed on humanity and the terry gilliam movies he talked about weird and interesting movies anything terry gilliam did you know fisher king uh uh brazil you know he's a uh, quite an intimate monty python guy of course and he uh, he did lots of wild stuff and 12 monkeys is is still gripping I, I i really enjoyed it and the modern sort of twist with the virus thing just kind of made it that much more chilling in terms of uh of uh it's it, you know it's 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 relevance so i i recommend that movie that was uh that was a real good watch all righty thanks again bruce all right thanks and in the meantime and in between times this has been another edition of the cult of hockey podcast <laughs>